Welcome! You're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Hi, I'm Mike Paul. Welcome to this podcast of articles from Ars Technica, a presentation of Airs LA. This is episode 16, recorded August 27th, 2022. We have five articles for you today. We'll settle the debate between buttons and touchscreens in cars. Hear how even a security researcher can be tricked into giving away personal information. Learn about the newest anti-tracking email service from a privacy-focused search engine. See whether T-Mobile and SpaceX can team up to deliver even faster wireless data. And find out whether computers or TV are less likely to promote dementia. Without further ado, let's get into it. Our first article is by Jonathan M. Gitlin, published on August 18th, 2022. Buttons beat touchscreens in cars, and now there's data to prove it. It's probably a little early to be warning of extinction, but in some new cars, buttons are becoming hard to find. Given that a screen has to go into the dashboard anyway, thanks to things like backup camera requirements, and the fact that people increasingly won't consider a car without Android Auto or Apple CarPlay, touchscreens make life easier for automakers in terms of design and assembly. It's just that they don't make life easier for drivers. Instead, we're treated to bad interfaces that don't create muscle memory, but instead distract us while we should be driving. And now, Swedish car publication Vubu Legre has the data to prove it. VB tested 11 new cars alongside a 2005 Volvo C70, timing how long it took to perform a list of tasks in each car. These included turning on the seat heater, increasing the cabin temperature, turning on the defroster, adjusting the radio, resetting the trip computer, turning off the screen, and dimming the instruments. The old Volvo was the clear winner. The four tasks is handled within 10 seconds flat, during which the car has driven 306 meters at 110 kilometers per hour, or 1,004 feet at 68 miles per hour, VB found. Most of the other cars required twice as long, or more, to complete the same tasks. VB says that one important aspect of this test is that the drivers had time to get to know the cars and their infotainment systems before the test started. With my devil's advocate hat on for a second, most drivers who drive regularly will regularly drive the same car, building more familiarity over months and years than a journalist will after even a week with a new model. But that kind of long-term adaptation is the user conforming to the vehicle's wishes. And shouldn't good design be the opposite of that? why they pushed the button on all-touch interfaces. VB lays the blame for the shift from buttons to screens with designers who want a clean interior with minimal switchgear. That's fair, but I don't think we can count on the accountants either. If everything can be achieved by touching the screen, then the company doesn't also have to pay for the plastic and wires that buttons are made from nor the time it takes someone to make that into buttons or install them in a car. Even with touchscreens, though, we can see in the spread of scores VB gave to different all-touch cars 
that design matters. You'll find almost no buttons in a Tesla Model 3, and we called out the lack of buttons in the Subaru Outback in our review, but both performed quite well in VB's tests. And VW's use of capacitive touch versus physical for the controls on the center stack appears to be exactly the wrong decision in terms of usability, with the ID3 right at the bottom of the pack in VB scores. I'm not surprised that the BMW iX scored well. Although it has a touchscreen, you're not obligated to use it. BMW's rotary iDrive controller falls naturally to hand, and there are permanent controls arrayed around it under a sliver of wood that both looks and feels interesting. It's an early implementation of what the company calls Shytech, and it's a design trend I am very much looking forward to seeing evolve in the future. Again, there are examples of automakers doing this much better than others. Over the past couple of weeks, I've spent time in an Acura MDX and Mazda CX-60, neither of which uses a touchscreen infotainment system. Neither managed to do better than 19 miles per gallon either, which is frankly appalling in 2022. But the CX-50 did at least distinguish itself for ease of use when it came to the infotainment system. Mazda's latest system has been criticized for being bare bones, but odds are a driver is using Apple CarPlay or Android Auto, and it's actually quite easy to use with the rotary controller and its hard buttons, which, again, are right where your right hand expects them to be, or left hand in a right-hand drive car. The more expensive Acura also places the infotainment screen far out of reach, it's a much higher resolution display, befitting a much more expensive car, and the MDX's infotainment system is much more capable than the CX-50's in terms of apps and features. I also quite like the layout and fonts, although obviously that's a pretty subjective thing. I won't subject you to the depth of my current feelings about Acura's true touchpad, just a high-level, mostly polite version. It has a one-to-one -one relationship between the screen and the pad, so it doesn't work at all like any other trackpad in any other car you might have driven. And that means it requires a lot of concentration to use, particularly if you're trying to interact with CarPlay. And it doesn't need saying that requires concentration to use, quote-unquote, is likely the last quality anyone wants in an infotainment system. I'm not surprised that the old Volvo one, dating from a time when most functions were controlled by individual buttons, and when infotainment didn't really yet exist. And in some ways, the tests played to its strengths. There's no Android Auto or CarPlay, and the only safe way your phone is showing you directions is if you bring a suction mount. Do be careful what you press if anyone's sitting in the back seat, though. In Volvos of that vintage, one of those buttons drops the rear headrests, which are rather heavy and very much wish to return to a horizontal orientation with absolute disregard for the skulls of anyone sitting in their way. Our second article is by Dan Gooden, published on August 11th, 2022. I'm a security reporter and got fooled by a blatant fish. There has been a recent flurry of phishing attacks so surgically precise and well-executed 
that they've managed to fool some of the most aware people working in the cybersecurity industry. On Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, two-factor authentication provider Twilio, content delivery network Cloudflare, and network equipment maker Cisco said Fishers, with a PH, in possession of phone numbers belonging to employees and employee family members, had tricked their employees into revealing their credentials. The Fishers gained access to the internal systems of Twilio and Cisco. Cloudflare's hardware-based two-factor authentication keys prevented the Fishers from accessing its systems. The Fishers were persistent, methodical, and had clearly done their homework. In one minute, at least 76 Cloudflare employees received text messages that used various ruses to trick them into logging into what they believed was their work account. The phishing website used the domain, cloudflare-octa.com, that had been registered 40 minutes before the message flurry, thwarting a system Cloudflare uses to be alerted when the domains using its name are created, presumably because it takes time for new entries to populate. The Fishers also had the means to defeat forms of two-factor authentication, or 2FA, that rely on one-time passwords generated by authenticator apps or sent through text messages. Creating a sense of urgency. Like Cloudflare, both Twilio and Cisco received text messages or phone calls that were also sent under the premise that there were urgent circumstances, a sudden change in a schedule, a password expiring, or a call under the guise of a trusted organization, necessitating that the target takes action quickly. On Wednesday, it was my turn. At 3.54 p.m. Pacific, I received an email purporting to be from Twitter, informing me that my Twitter account had just been verified. I was immediately suspicious because I hadn't applied for verification and didn't really want to. But the header showed that the email originated from Twitter.com, the link which I opened in Tor on a secure machine, led to the real Twitter.com site, and nothing in the email or linked page asked me to provide any information. I also noticed that a checkmark had suddenly appeared on my profile page. Satisfied the email was genuine, I noted my surprise on Twitter at 355 Seconds later, at 3.56, I received a direct message purporting to come from Twitter's verification department. It said that for my verification to become permanent, I needed to respond to the message with either my driver's license, passport, or other government-issued ID. I have strong feelings about the inappropriateness of Twitter, a company that has been hacked at least three times and admitted to misusing user phone numbers, asking for this kind of data. I was mad. It was near the end of my workday. I was still surprised at the unexpected and unfaked gifting by Twitter of a checkmark I hadn't asked for. So without thoroughly reading the DM, I tweeted a screenshot of it, along with a cynical comment about Twitter not being trustworthy. The thing is, the DM used broken English. The user handle was named support, followed by a bunch of numbers, and the account was locked. The DM is a textbook example of a fish, with all the hallmarks of a scam. So why was my first impression that this message was genuine? There are a few reasons. The timing of the DM was the first. I didn't look at the timestamps until later, so they seemed to arrive simultaneously. 
Somehow that seemed too unlikely to be anything other than real. The DM related to something that had just happened, something that I hadn't expected. In my state of surprise, I think I briefly suspended my critical judgment. Besides, I had already suspected that the email was a scam and was proved wrong. I also have long held the belief that fishers aren't all that bright, else they'd rely on more technical means of breaching a target's security. That gave me a sense of invincibility. The person behind the DM almost certainly relied on a script that either monitored new Twitter verifications or my timeline and swooped in almost immediately after the verification went into effect, probably with the use of an automated script. In retrospect, that's an obvious thing for a fisher to do, but it hadn't occurred to me before that someone would be this determined and resourceful. Even if I hadn't been averse to sending my Twitter ID, and even if I was like many who covet the verification checkmark, I don't, I think they're a status symbol akin to vanity license plates and can't be relied on to verify anything, I think I would have noticed the obvious signs of fraud before I followed the request to send my ID. I've learned to delay responding to requests like these for at least a few hours and, ideally, a day or two. That gives me a few chances to read the message, hopefully in a clearer state of mind. But there's no denying that I initially thought the DM was genuine, and there's no doubt that the Twilio, Cloudflare, and Cisco employees thought the messages they received were genuine too. Defend yourself. First, for clarity, a quick explanation. My Twitter account really was verified. I still don't know why. It may be that Twitter did it unilaterally, possibly because the company wants to verify journalists or wants to increase the number of verified users it has. It's also possible that someone at my employer, Condé Nast, made this happen, and somehow this didn't get communicated to me. The main thing is my account really did get verified. The Fisher, either using a bot that monitors new verifications or seeing my tweet, quickly capitalized on this. Ultimately, I didn't act on the fish, but consider the speed at which I took a screenshot and tweeted it. I acted on it before I had fully read it. I'd like to think there's no way I would have actually sent the info to Twitter, even if I had really wanted the verification. But if I can tweet out a screenshot, I can probably do other, worse things on impulse too. So how do we protect ourselves in situations like these? Critical judgment and a keen eye are no doubt the first line of defense against phishing attacks. That means looking for the usual things, poor grammar or spelling, domain or account names that depart from the normal ones a company uses, messages that make us feel scared, angry, or surprised. But this can't be the only defense, as all four of the incidents mentioned here show. 2FA is the next line of defense, although in my case it wouldn't have done anything since the fishers were after my ID and not trying to get into my account. Both Google and Twitter offer a form of 2FA that uses physical security keys only. This form of 2FA is unfishable and is the gold standard. Sadly, on many other sites, 2FA isn't as strong a defense against phishing as many people think. GitHub, Facebook, and most other sites that offer hardware-based 2FA require users to fall back on one-time passwords, in some cases sent through the horribly insecure medium of SMS. 
If someone can get phished for a password, they can get phished for a one-time password too. Or in the case of a Cisco employee, be tricked into accepting a 2FA push notification. While any form of 2FA is better than none, the industry has a long way to go in firming up this important security measure. The most important defense is remaining humble and not falling into the mindset that we would never get pulled in by a fisher. Fishers are more sophisticated than we may think. They come up with new tricks all the time. It's only a matter of time until one of them throws us off balance. As Cloudflare officials wrote in their disclosure, having a paranoid but blame-free culture is critical for security. The three employees who fell for the phishing scam were not reprimanded. We're all human, and we make mistakes. It's critically important that when we do, we report them and don't cover them up. Our third article is by Kevin Purdy, published on August 25th, 2022. DuckDuckGo now offers anti-tracking email service to everyone. DuckDuckGo's tracker-removing email service, which has been available in private beta for a year, is now open to anyone who uses a DuckDuckGo mobile app, browser extension, or Mac browser. It has also added a few more privacy tools. The service provides you a duck.com email address, one intended to be given out for the kinds of subscribe to our newsletter for 20% off emails you know exist only to harvest data and target you for ads. Email sent to your duck.com address forwards to your chosen primary email, but with trackers removed. Email protection now also fixes up links, strips them of tracking modifiers, upgrades encrypted HTTP URLs to HTTPS where possible, and for the rare necessary reply, allows you to send directly from your Duck address instead of exposing your primary email. During their closed beta, DuckDuckGo claims that 85% of the emails it processed contained hidden trackers. To sign up for email protection, you need to use either the DuckDuckGo mobile app for iOS or Android, Use DuckDuckGo's browser extension on Firefox, Chrome, Edge, or Brave, or use its beta Mac browser, the list for which must be joined in the DuckDuckGo mobile app. In my experience, using the company's apps, extensions, or browser isn't necessary to keep the email forwarding service running, but they allow you to auto-fill your Duck address and create more individual throwaway email addresses, which is handy for email filtering. DuckDuckGo notes that the trackers tucked into email images and links can pass information back to the sender about when you opened a message, your geolocation when opening it, and which device you were using. Knowing your primary email address can also allow companies to connect it to Facebook and Google to target you for advertising across sites. The company helpfully notes that it will not track you using its anti-tracking service. Quote, When your duck addresses receive an email, we immediately apply our tracking protections and then forward it to you, never saving it on our systems. Sender information, subject lines, we don't track any of it, the company writes on its blog post. DuckDuckGo is also, quote, committed to email protection for the long term, unquote, and states that it worked during the closed beta to support millions of users. Music. 
Our fourth article is by Eric Berger, published on August 26, 2022. Forget 5G wireless. SpaceX and T-Mobile want to offer 0G coverage. SpaceX and T-Mobile announced an ambitious plan on Thursday evening to provide ubiquitous connectivity from space to anyone with a cell phone. The project would pair SpaceX's Starlink satellite technology with the second-largest wireless carrier in the United States, T-Mobile U.S., and its mid-band spectrum, mobile network, and large customer base. Delivering space-to-ground internet to mobile phones will require SpaceX to finalize development of its second generation of Starlink satellites. These will be significantly larger than the current ones, which have a mass of about 295 kilograms. SpaceX founder and chief engineer Elon Musk said the project could enter beta service before the end of 2023. During a live event at SpaceX's Starbase facility in South Texas, where the company is building and testing its next-generation Starship rocket, Musk appeared alongside T-Mobile U.S. Chief Executive Mike Sievert. The event had something of a rocket concert flair, with a smoke machine, fireworks, and plenty of people mingling around the stage in black t-shirts. Only, these shirts bore magenta T-Mobile and white SpaceX logos, and three Starship prototypes loomed in the background. The companies are promising to deliver a service dreamed about since the advent of mobile telephones. No dead zones. Quoting, Our vision is, if you have a clear view of the sky, you're connected, Sievert said. How this would work. Presently, a user of SpaceX's Starlink service needs to have a dish-shaped terminal that can pull down broadband internet from one of the 2,800 Starlink satellites in low Earth orbit. The existing satellites are just not powerful enough to connect to much smaller mobile phones, as the signal is too weak. The solution to this problem is using a much more powerful phased array antenna on the second version, or V2, of the Starlink satellites. Musk said the body of these satellites would be about 7 meters long, and the antenna would fold out to be about 5 meters on a side, or roughly 25 square meters. As the satellite passes overhead, this antenna will send and receive data along a focused beam passing across the planet's surface. Initially, at least, the service would not provide broadband internet service. But in a typical cell of service, it should provide up to 2 to 4 megabits of data, enough for thousands of voice calls or millions of text messages. This would allow connectivity in areas off the grid or during emergency situations, such as when a hurricane knocks out service to a community. A user's cell phone would look for service from the first cell phone tower, but when it did not detect this, a user's cell phone would look for service first from a cell tower. But when it did not detect this, instead of providing a user with no bars of service, the phone would search the sky. It would then draw connectivity from the nearest available satellite with software on the satellite communicating to the mobile phone as if it were a virtual cell tower on the ground. Sievert said T-Mobile planned to offer this service to its users on most of its existing plans for free, initially covering the United States, including Alaska and Hawaii, as well as much of the world's oceans. He invited foreign mobile network operators to partner with T-Mobile and SpaceX and offer reciprocal roaming around the world. The Challenges 
Beyond regulatory issues, SpaceX faces several major challenges to make this all work. Principal among them is designing and building the large satellites capable of talking to mobile phones. These are the most advanced antennas in the world, we think, Musk said. They have to pick up a very quiet signal from your cell phone. Just imagine, the signal has to travel 500 miles and then be caught by a satellite that's traveling at 17,000 miles per hour. The satellite's got to compensate for the Doppler effect of moving so fast. The satellites also have to get into space. The V-2 satellites are too large for the Falcon 9 rocket's payload fairing, which is 5 meters across. So the full-size Starlink V-2 satellites will need to wait for the much larger Starship rocket to come online. SpaceX is working toward doing just that at the Starbase facility in South Texas, but operational launches are likely at least a year away. To that end, if Starship development does not come as soon as expected, Musk said SpaceX may develop a V-2 mini Starlink satellite that could fit within the Falcon 9 rocket's payload fairing. But it seems clear that bringing the kind of global connectivity Musk and Sievert spoke about will require a fully operational Starship launch system. In his comments on Thursday night, Musk acknowledged that the company has a lot of technical work to do, but he said the SpaceX teams have made great progress. So it's really quite a difficult technical challenge, he said, but we have it working in the lab, and we're confident that this will work in the field. So it's actually quite a lot of extra hardware on the satellites, and it's also a lot of software. It's a hard problem. The competition. SpaceX has already launched satellites for one competitor in this area, Link, and is due to launch the Blue Walker 3 demonstration satellite for another company, AST Space Mobile, later this year. Both of these companies are attempting to deliver direct-to-cell phone service. Link says it already has successfully demonstrated the ability to use ordinary, unmodified mobile telephones to connect to satellite internet services. The company presently has one operational satellite in space, but is planning to launch more to provide a wider area of coverage. Elon says it's hard, and it's only been done in the lab, but Link has done it in space already, Charles Miller, the co-founder and chief executive of Link, said in an interview Thursday night. We're the only company in the world that has done that. Link has 14 commercial contracts with mobile network operators covering 35 countries, Miller said. The company expects to receive a license from the U.S. Federal Communications Commission before the end of this year to begin selling commercial service in those countries. While Link has a head start and AST Space Mobile a satellite ready for demonstration tests, the entrance of SpaceX and T-Mobile, two of the world's leaders in spaceflight and connectivity, has created a whole new level of competition. Plausibly, they could pull this off, as SpaceX has already deployed the world's largest satellite constellation, and the company has a history of delivering on its new rockets. Musk and Sievert seem to enjoy themselves on stage and talked of other ways the two companies might partner. Starlink, for example, might provide backhaul capacity to remote cell towers on Earth. This means the satellites would connect those towers to the internet without T-Mobile having to run wire to the towers. And perhaps one day, T-Mobile might become the first cell service provider on Mars. We'd love to have T-Mobile on Mars, Musk quipped during the event.
Our fifth and final article is by John Timmer, published on August 22nd, 2022. Computers versus TV. Which is less likely to promote dementia? Get off your chair. The physical risks associated with inactivity generally involve lower cardiovascular health, either directly or via obesity. Even a small amount of physical activity appears capable of limiting these impacts, although increased exercise generally seems to be even better. Details vary depending on the study and the exact risk being examined. Exercise also seems to improve mental health. It can be an effective therapy for depression and other disorders and appears to help stave off some of the unfortunate impacts of aging. Exercise and physical activity have shown promise in reducing rates of cognitive decline, structural brain atrophy, and dementia risk in older adults, the authors write, citing the work done in other studies. One of the oddities of some of the studies noted in the new one is that several of them used hours watching the television as a stand-in for the amount of time spent inactive. While that may have been true a few decades back, we've since greatly diversified our inactivity with computers and mobile devices offering new ways of feeling like you're doing something without the need to do anything. So, the researchers decided to look into this into more detail and tackle some related questions. Their study design separated computer use and TV viewing, and it looked at how each influenced the onset of mental problems associated with aging. It also examined whether physical activity could influence the association between sedentary behavior and aging-associated problems. To do so, the researchers took advantage of the UK Biobank, a large database that combines anonymized demographics of health outcomes for hundreds of thousands of UK citizens. For this work, the team excluded people under 60 years old and focused the work on about 75,000 people who had filled in detailed information about their level of activity and leisure pursuits. Not good, but better. Before we get into the results, a small reminder. The work focused on the influence of sedentary behavior on mental issues. Physical health issues weren't examined. It's possible for something that looks relatively good in this analysis to be an overall negative once physical issues are factored in. That out of the way, what did they see? With age and gender controlled for, the time spent watching TV was associated with an increased risk of dementia, a hazard ratio of 1.3, meaning they were 1.3 times more likely to be diagnosed with indications of dementia. Physical activity lowered the risk very slightly. By contrast, computer use lowered the risk by quite a bit more, dropping the hazard ratio to 0.8. The same trend held when the researchers divided the group into thirds and compared high, medium, and low TV viewing and computer use. Controlling for additional factors like diet, alcohol use, and obesity didn't change the outcome either. Although the impact of physical activity was minor, the researchers tested whether it might offset some of the problems associated with high TV viewing or low computer use. High levels of exercise appear to have a somewhat protective effect, but it's a minor one. Mental Reserve 
Overall, the results suggest that we need to separate how we think about the problems associated with sedentary activity. In terms of physical health, any type of activity may be roughly equivalent. But regarding mental issues, how you spend your inactivity matters. Some means of being a couch potato involve passive consumption, and others involve a greater degree of mental activity. In this sense, the results fit neatly into a large body of research that indicates that remaining mentally active can provide a degree of protection from dementia. Things like reading and playing vocabulary games appear to generally reduce dementia risk, and the benefits seem to build up, even if the reading happens when people are relatively young. So there's some reason not to be surprised by this general outcome. That said, there are still a fair number of reasons for caution. Among other potential issues, the researchers note that activity levels were only checked at one point in the participants' history and were self-reported, which tends to be less accurate. It's also important to recognize that computer time will include a vast range of activities, some significantly more involved than others, so still some work to do there. But the next time someone yells at you for wasting time reading R's, you can tell them you're protecting your mental health. And that'll do it for this week's articles. To learn more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us at facebook.com slash A-I-R-S-L-A. If you like what's there, you can hit the like button. Music is provided by Hot Fire. I'm Mike Paul, and I'll be back soon with more stories from Ars Technica. Thanks for listening. Yeah.